The Breakdown is sponsored by the Soundtrack of America, Made in Tennessee. And one of the things we love to do in this show is trace back the roots of bluegrass music to the places it came from. One of those places is the charming city of Bristol, high up in the mountains where Tennessee meets Virginia. It's here producer Ralph Peer recorded the famous Bristol sessions, introducing Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family to the world. And you can learn all about its rich cultural heritage at the birthplace of Country Music Museum, part of Tennessee Music Park ways a statewide program that preserves the legacy of music in Tennessee. If you want to visit the places that inspired so many of the records we talk about on this podcast, check out tnvacation.com to start planning your trip. And now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to The Breakdown, the podcast that uncovers the greatest sounds and stories in bluegrass music, one iconic record at a time. I'm Patrick McGonigal, the fiddle player with the Lonely Heartstring Band. And I'm Emma John, author, journalist, and all-round bluegrass novice. Today we're talking about Seldom Scenes Live at the Cellar Door. It's a complete romp of an album, recorded live in Washington DC in 1975. The Seldom Scene was so named because they were made up of four musicians who had absolutely no intention of going on the road. John Starling on guitar, Ben Eldridge on banjo, Tom Gray on bass, and of course, the legendary John Duffy on mandolin. It was Duffy's second band, really, wasn't it, Patrick? It was. It was his second band. It was the band that, as you said, would never tour because the first band, Country Gentleman, toured too much for John. And he'd basically retired from the Country Gentleman because he'd had enough and and ended up jamming with some friends in Ben Eldridge's basement and forming this band. He was like, well, we're going to play the music we want to play and and say names like Eric Clapton from stage at a bluegrass show. But meanwhile, we're not going to try to tour. We're not going to try to get booked at Carlton Haney's festivals. We're just going to do our own thing and we're going to play a weekly gig for 20 plus years and play whatever we want. And And the record proves it. I love how they just, they play whatever they want. They play songs that the Grateful Dead made famous. They play Will the Circle Be Unbroken. They just unabashedly play whatever they want, knowing that Bill Monroe probably hated it. I didn't realise that the Cellar Door was not one of their regular gigs. Um, they had these two other famous regular gigs. Uh, one of them was at the Red Fox Inn in Bethesda, Maryland, and the other one was at the Birchmere in Virginia, in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, the Cellar Door wasn't one of their weekly gigs, but uh, they liked they liked the venue apparently, and they thought it would. Uh, it, it, I think they did a Christmas show. I did. I did talk to both Tom Gray and Ben Eldridge uh, about this album and uh, I think Tom Gray told me that this was 
a sort of annual gig that they did at the Celador, and they realized it would probably make for a, for a good live album. I had never really listened to the band much beyond peripherally hearing the the seldom scene. And so this is kind of my first exposure to the band. And one of the things that struck me about this record is just how enthusiastic the audience is. They lose their minds after every song and after every solo. And from the sounds of things, it sounds like it's an all-female audience. <laughs> there, are, there are particularly, well, I think, a couple women in the audience that just freak out after every solo and every song. And I feel like that just drives the energy of the whole recording. As much as a crazy John Duffy solo, it's also these amazing women just loving every note. Uh, I love that you've picked up on that, uh, partly because I'm not sure whether it's women or just one woman, and also partly because, and I think we should introduce this here, uh, Tom Gray told me the secret of of that scream. You've heard uh, there's uh, there's a screaming female voice that that is heard on that record that live recording. Well, our engineer friend who recorded all of this and put together the package that is the live at the Solador album, he kept reusing that same scream. <laughs> you can hear it in there, you know, just showing that you know, people were having a good time in there. Uh, it's interesting that, uh, oh, 20 years later, a woman came to me and said, I am the one who was screaming in the cellar door. <laughs> I said, oh, that's you. <laughs> One of the things that a lot of people complain about about the album, they say they love the actual songs and the tracks, but they, you know, they don't like the screaming and it's too much for them. Uh, what? That's I, like one of the coolest parts about it because it, it, I feel like it drives the energy so hard because, you know, if you've stopped paying attention to this record for like 30 seconds and then you hear some woman go, ah! Your attention is immediately drawn back in. You cannot put this on quietly during a dinner party. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's not a, a soundtrack to my dinner with Andre, for sure. <laughs> um, it's also, I mean, as I kind of mentioned before, it's such a great record uh, as, as kind of a time capsule for the, the bluegrass industry at that moment because they are encapsulating so much of what was happening in bluegrass and kind of the larger conversation about bluegrass in general that still happens because this record, they just toe the line between rock and roll and jam band kind of like, this is before jam grass is a thing. And yet the last track on the record is an eight minute jam song. And they play songs that the Grateful Dead were playing. They, they, they really hit on the pop songs, but then they, they play Rawhide and they play a bunch of Bill Monroe songs and they play a bunch of kind of like showy instrumentals. And I really, I, I think part of what makes this record so high up in the bluegrass mythology is just that, you know, it, it, the record says more than a thousand words ever could about bluegrass music. I think you would really like to hear what Tom Gray says about uh, the, how they chose these songs. The simple truth is, 
They didn't. <laughs> Let me clarify something. There never was a set list for the seldom seen. We wanted it to be spontaneous. Uh, anytime we went on stage, we would plan the first two, maybe three songs, and just wing it from there. We'd talk to each other and say, what do you want, what do you want to do an old booger? Said, yeah, I would do Bill Monroe tunes, sing uh, uh, My Little Georgia Rose or uh, uh, a pop tune. And, and, of course, John Starling, being the lead singer, would choose much of the material. Uh, he sought new songs from songwriters. Uh, and on that Cellar Door album, he... Uh, he rode all the way to Texas. Uh, we had never played that on stage before. We had just worked it out in the back room. And uh, th this is something that John Starling suggested to do. Uh, and that night, uh, he said, let's sing all the way to Texas. All the way to Texas On an old freight train He's letting you know He's the moving kind It also just is the sound of the 70s bluegrass scene. I mean, I always think about the sound of, of 70s being Sonny Osborne and Ben Eldridge's banjo playing. It's just such a sound. It's very, like, bright and kind of bell-like and, and almost I, I hate to say the word clangy because it's not clangy it's just like very in your face but it's that banjo sound combined with tons and tons of chords all of the bluegrass pioneers before us were all country people. They were all from the South. And uh, their music uh, appealed to some of us people who grew up in cities. And uh, John Duffy felt f from the start, there are a lot of people like me in these cities, and we should play our music to them we will never be able to relate to all those people who grew up on farms or had been coal miners for their lives, like so many of the early Rugas pioneers. He said, we're city people. We should play our music to other city people. John Duffy also, aside from being a great mandolin player and singer and all-round in-your-face loud guy was a great instrument repair person he was a luthier and i a staple in the the kind of central east coast music scene for being the guy to put your guitar back together they all had their own day jobs didn't they they uh, mike aldridge was a graphic designer tom gray was a cartographer for national geographic john starling he was an ear nose and throat doctor and had seen service as an army surgeon in Vietnam. Ben Eldridge was a mathematician, and he met John Starling while they were both at the University of Virginia. That's how they came 
uh, to end up playing together. And he told us a little bit about that. And Mike and I were pretty, pretty much uh, the same age. Um, we were both born in 38, and I was born in August, and he was born, I believe, in December. So, so we, Mike and I were, were two, you know, closest in age to each other. We had just a little basement band. We just, we never went out to play anywhere. We just would come over to my house uh, on Monday nights. Uh, everybody would get there about seven thirty, quarter of eight, and we'd go down to my basement and pick. Uh, we just play, and we had never had any, uh, you know, idea of, you know, going out and doing it uh, in front of people. But John was a legend at that point. We were just, you know, we were just basement pickers. The rest of us. Uh, but we, but I, I'd gotten to know John uh, at, uh, at while well, I was teaching banjo in a music store, and he had a, a, a little repair shop across the hall, and I'd gotten to know him. Uh, so uh, anyway, we we thought we'd give him a call, see if he'd be interested in doing a, a band. And I'll never forget uh, Starling was in my kitchen, and uh, called we called Duff see if he'd be interested in it. And of course, none of us thought he would, you know, we were worthy of, of playing with John. <laughs> but, but anyway, I remember Starling telling him that, you know, John, would you be interested in doing something like this? And and I was listening to the conversation and I was expecting to hear uh, Starling say, well, that's all right. We just thought we'd see if you were interested. And instead, what I heard was, Oh yeah, well maybe we can get together next Monday or Tuesday night and uh, go over some tunes. And I freaked out, man. I thought, wow. <laughs> John liked to sing with other good singers, um, and John Starling was perhaps going to be the key to getting John Duffy to want to play and sing again. And so. That is how the band that they became the seldom scene got started when finally they persuaded John Duffy to go to a jam and he felt, this is fun. I could enjoy playing with these people. Sing my love through loneliness Sing my love through sorrow I'll give you my loneliness Come and give me your tomorrow Early on, we would uh, get together with John. John Duffy hated to practice, and so uh, John Starling's wife, Faye was a real good singer and real good. You know, she could hear harmonies and stuff like she. You know, she all she had to do is hear a song once, and she'd pick it up. So what we would what we would do, we would just go up to Starling's house and down to my house without Duffy. And you know, work on work on songs, work on the harmonies, and um, and Faisu would would uh, you know she would be singing the the uh, part that, that Duff would normally do. She would be singing tenor, and then when when we when the rest of us learned a song, we'd get together with Duff, and of course all you had to do was he all he had to do was hear it once or twice, and he'd have it. He didn't have the part all worked out. There were differences between John Starling and John Duffy. Their approach to singing, 
John Duffy wanted to sing loud and strong and high. John Starling uh, wanted to be less forceful, but uh, sound more 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 intimate. Uh, and at one time, John Starling was trying to persuade John Duffy to sing not so loud and strong. Uh, let your voice be a little more airy, even uh, use falsetto when you hit those high notes. Uh, and John Duffy looked at him and said, you be you and I'll be me. The way that they match their vowel sounds and their harmonies, they sound like one voice. It's really hard sometimes to tell, like, is this two voices or three voices or four voices? Because it's so blended and their their articulations are the same. And the, the way that they'll move dynamically in one syllable, one word from huge and open and loud to all of a sudden super quiet and closed all together, all locked in song after song after song. Now the truth has done, and it's plain enough to see that the whole world knew, with a small exception of me, that the whole world knew, with a small exception of me. They will make these little musical signatures with their voices yeah. that finish off songs in a way that no, it just was not part of bluegrass. It was it was not something that uh, that was part of the Bill Monroe or the Flat and Scrug style. The one on the small exception of me is now I think that is yeah. now the official way to sing that song. You know, yeah, for sure. Even though that was originally a Dean Martin song, right? It's like eat your heart out, Dean Martin. Southern team have have got this. Now the truth is down and it's plain enough to see that the whole world knew with a small exception of me. Meanwhile, they put a vocal tag a cappella on the front of My Little Georgia Rose, Bill Monroe's tune, which I'm sure he would have again been very upset about. But they put their stamp right in the front of that song. Not just the stamp at the front. What about the modulation? That's the thing that I think would have had Bill absolutely spinning on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) A modulation in a bluegrass tune. In a Bill Monroe tune. Uh, I like that's why I feel like a lot of their bluegrass is so tongue in cheek. We don't sing songs again. It's great bluegrass. They are playing it, they're slaying it. The traditionalists would absolutely love it. But there's a certain sense of caricature, like in Hit Parade of Love, the Jimmy Martin classic. They just sound like Jimmy Martin. They play it exactly like Jimmy Martin. To the effect that when when Ben Eldridge decides to take somewhat of a melodic style kind of 
modern banjo solo, the whole band starts heckling him on stage. It's a total spoof, isn't it? Cause yeah. They even bark uh, the way that that Jimmy yeah. Martin hit parade of love is the one where ben drops his pick isn't it right yeah yeah which i think is possibly one of the most famous moments of this album it might be one of the most well-known things about the seldom scene <laughs> yeah it's not actually anything to do with the music it's just the fact that in the middle of this solo he drops his pick that was me that was me that that happened uh it was probably about one o'clock in the morning uh, i we were probably all a little bit over adjusted to put it that way on our last set, and uh, I just got carried away. My pick fell off my finger while I was playing the lead on the banjo, and, uh, and of course, John made a big deal out of it on the uh, record. All that was happening fairly late in the evening, uh, as I recall. And and then, of course, the, the crazier the audience got, the crazier we got. The Cellador is a very small venue. I think it had a capacity of 163 or something like that. And I I do think it sounds like at every point on the album, you can hear every single one of the 163 yeah, people yeah. individually. I feel like they had as many mics pointed back at the audience as they did at the band. I never find the, 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 the heckling annoying. And even the way that the band responds to heckling by acknowledging it and replying to it, that's like number one no-no from stage. If you start responding to hecklers, you're just opening a can of worms. But they're respectful. I don't find them chirping up in the middle of songs, but they just kind of, they jump in and holler where I would jump in and holler. And I appreciate that. Um, and when the quiet songs there, it's pin drop quiet. I mean, maybe that's an engineering thing, but it also creates a vibe of like, Oh, this is the moment when we're really quiet. And they don't for like the sad songs, they don't whoop and scream and holler. They have this very like kind of contemplative, I don't know. They really reflect the album to me. I always found the second half of the album less interesting. I would quite often switch off after small exception of me because that's one of my favorites and I was like yeah, yeah, yeah I've got everything I wanted to out of this listen um but the more I've listened to the last few songs uh the more I found some of them unbearably moving I, I feel yeah. like White Line is a, a really good example of of one that's just you know, you just don't expect cold and lonely on the road Lord, I wish I had a 
That song was written by Willie P. Bennett, uh, who was a Canadian mandolin player and guitar player and songwriter and just lived on the road his whole life. And uh, he's a Canadian legend, and he played a lot with a, with a well-known Canadian rocker named Fred Eaglesmith. Uh, but he died in 2008. Essentially, what killed him was the road. He had addiction issues and alcohol issues, and, um, and he just lived a really hard-driving, live-fast-die-hard kind of life. But he wrote a lot of really beautiful and, and pensive songs like this one, which is clearly just a song. I mean, White Line speaks to you know, drug culture as much as it speaks to highway culture. And just kind of the song about being road weary and, and, and tired and, you know, and knowing Willie's story, it's a, it's a real song. It's a real song about a real lived experience. Standing by a midnight highway, excuse me, sir, you're going my way. On and on the endless white line goes. There's some other tracks that have sad backstories as well aren't there on this album city of new orleans yeah which is actually one of my favorite songs and i only came across it because of this album i hadn't known about the arlo guthrie version or the willie nelson version in 84 which won a grammy award i the only one i had heard was seldom seen doing it and um, it's just beautiful Riding on the city of New Orleans Illinois Central Monday morning rain Got 15 cars, 15 restless riders Three conductors, 25 sacks of mail I am a person who loves a train journey, so perhaps Mm. it was was always going to speak to me. But it also has a slightly sad backstory because it was written by Steve Goodman who found out that he had leukemia at the age of 20 and wow. uh, he he was a classmate of Hillary Clinton at the time at college uh, but he when he discovered that he had this illness and that it wasn't going to go away he left college to just play music full-time and he had 16 years of being a full-time musician and then died at 36. Singing good morning America how are you? Yeah, don't you know me? I'm your native son. I'm the train they call the city of New Orleans. And I'll be gone 500 miles when day is done. John and I were, I don't know, we were listening to something on the radio uh, one night. I think in, just riding in the car. And uh, and they they played it. They played Steve Goodman's version of it. And we went over to the record store the next day and bought the album. Met him one time uh, over at Faisu's house and uh, picked a couple of songs with him. And he was just a sweet, nice guy. My drifting memory goes back to the spring of 43 when I was just a child in Mama's arms. My daddy plowed the ground and prayed that someday he might leave this rundown mortgage to Oklahoma farm. You mentioned how 
so much of this album encapsulates the sound of the 70s. I wonder if that is what I'm thinking of when I listen to California Cotton Fields, which is one of my favourite tracks on this album. Uh, I, f- I think John Starling's singing is so smooth and sexy yeah. and gorgeous. Yeah. But I also really, really love the storytelling and the words of the song. I find it incredibly touching. And there's a line in the chorus that's repeated uh, when labour camps were filled with worried men with broken dreams. But to me, that sounds like it's got a real touch of the Simon and Garfunkel about it. When labour camps were filled with worried men with broken dreams California cotton fields As close to wealth as daddy ever came I mean, it's a it's a great John Starling style because the like the songs that he does write, like he wrote all the way to Texas and Cieno Canal, are kind of storytelling songs. He's really, as you say, he does have a great way of delivering the stories. John Starling was uh, he was very intense when he was working out the way he was going to sing a song. He didn't just stand up and sing a song that he'd heard someone else sing or that somebody had given him the words to a song and said, hey, sing this. He wanted to work out just how he was going to sing every note. Was he going to slide into it? Was he going to explode onto a a word, a a note of places where there were harmonies? Uh, Would he want to pounce on it or... uh, he would plan how he would say every word and sing every note. Hey, 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 Lockery. Oh, hey, hey, CNO Canal. Um, that's a that's another beautiful, soft kind of song. That's very Gordon Lightfoot. Did you see that that was? actually written to go with a tv documentary yeah they they mentioned it in the recording but i didn't know anything about the documentary itself it was called perspective when the past dries up and it was a a, a tv uh, film that was made about the cno canal also known as the chesapeake and ohio canal also apparently sometimes known as the grand old ditch uh, which is a 19th century man-made waterway Uh, that runs 185 miles uh, from the Potomac River via West Virginia to Maryland. And it it used to uh, take barges carrying coal from the Allegheny Mountains. Up from a night in a shanty saloon She remembers the night of the boatman's tunes It's all a part of the boatman's soul It's the smell of the dust of the Cumberland coal We need to talk about Tom Gray's bass playing on this record. Um, It's one of the things that, in my naivete, really stuck out to me, um, having not listened to a bunch of Seldom Seen. What an amazing bass player he was. In North Carolina for the best bass player in bluegrass music. I mean, he 
is so not traditional in the way that he plays the bass. His whole solos are just walking. He's a phenomenal walking bass player. Um, Small Exception of Me is another great example. His bass playing is like, it's almost like he's the featured instrumentalist on that track. It's like he's doing all the fills and yet he's the bass player and he's still holding down the bass. I don't know. I I was just in love with, with his bass playing the entire record. I first met John Duffy when he played with a band called Lucky Chapman and the Ozark Mountain Boys or something like that. And I remember seeing John Duffy, that big guy with the mandolin, who had an air about him. That, 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 that he obviously felt superior to everyone else. Uh, a lot of people have gotten that impression of John and his attitude. Uh, but uh, anyway, I got to know John. Um, and uh, d- despite his <laughs> uh, airs about him, uh, he did become a, a friendly person and supportive person to me in in my career. I had been going to see the country gentleman uh, in the club where they played uh, and got quite familiar with all of the members in the band. Uh, I remember when Eddie Adcock first joined the country gentleman uh, up and uh, they would uh, ask me to get up and play a few songs with them. Uh, And then I was asked to join the gentleman when I was still 19 years old. Gosh, that was 60 years ago. They were both uh, in the uh, contemporary side of bluegrass at the time. But the sound of the band uh, was different. The seldom scene was smoother. Uh, it featured the dobro of Mike Aldridge. Uh, Mike played with such a pretty tone. And John Starling, being the lead singer, had such a smooth voice that... Uh, I needed to play less aggressively than I did with the country gentlemen who were uh, kind of artistically looser. You must leave, take what you need if they fast. Whatever you wish to keep you, better grab it fast. You understand you're off with his gun Crying like a fire in the sun It's all over now, Baby Blue. 
famous Bob Dylan song. By the yeah. time uh, the Seldom Seen do it on this album, everyone has covered this song, including the birds and the country gentleman, which right. is presumably why it gets done again. And as you said, it, you know, Tom Gray already has this amazing walking bass part. Well, Tom Gray was in the country gentleman with Duffy before uh, he joined the seldom scene. And, uh, and if you listen to the country gentleman's version of this song, you'll notice it's very similar. Oh, really? It's the same walking bass line. It's got the same kickoff. It's got a very similar groove. It's got very similar timing. The one thing that's different, they took it up a tone. Oh, they took it up a tone for the seldom scene. Yeah. So John Duffy Ah. obviously thinks, I was already singing pretty high on the tenor. Let's see how high I can go. (laughs) And I, I read this morning that he had four octaves that he could sing. He, he had a, a register of four octaves, which is kind of unheard of. I mean, it makes sense. Some of those notes that he hits on this record are crazy high. But it also makes sense because uh, his dad, John Duffy Humbird Sr., was in the chorus at the Metropolitan Opera and was a highly trained and very successful opera singer. And apparently, as a child, John Duffy spent... A lot of time with his dad doing breathing exercises and vocal technique to really get that high register. Um, so it would make sense that he, you know, wants to flex his throat muscles, I guess, <laughs> uh, and and take it up a notch. Strike up another match, go start a new. It's all over now, baby. It's all over now, baby blue. And I think that's part of what makes this such a moving performance is that really high, piercing, almost vibrato-less performance. It's just, it's, it's devastating. It's, I would say that's, if I had to pick one track, that might be it. I also think it's interesting that they do Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Um, because it's, of course, the, the title song of maybe the most popular, and I say popular in terms of like the genre of pop music, it's the most popular record of, of that kind of era in bluegrass. It's, it's what really drew uh, Maybelle Carter and Doc Watson and Jimmy Martin and and of course the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band into this really public mainstream. I was standing by my window on one cold and cloudy day when I saw thee first come rolling for to carry my mother away. They've clearly listened to the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band version because a lot of the inflections are, are replicated here. Um, but the thing that that saves this one for me is uh, the Mike Aldridge's Dobro playing. He does gorgeous fills, and he's got a tone and a taste that's just next level. And I, throughout this whole record, listening to the Dobro really made me realize more than ever how much he defines the sound of the dobro. (laughs) 
I love the dobro playing on Dark Hollow. It's doing such interesting things under the mandolin during the intro. Whenever he's playing underneath someone, he never steps on the toes. I feel like that's that's why he uh, the dobro and bass on this record work so well because they can both play exactly what they want all the time, but they never step on anyone else. I'd rather be in some dark hollow where the sun don't never shine. And to be all alone and far away from home, it would cause me to lose my mind. Mike, at first, was a banjo player. He was attracted to this music that was to become known as bluegrass. And uh, at first, there was no dobro in it, of course. But uh, uh, he was so excited when Flatten Scruggs hired Josh Grays to be a dobro player. This is something Mike had always wanted to do. He wanted to be like his uncle, Ellsworth Cousins. Uh, Ellsworth Cousins had played the slide guitar with Jimmy Rogers in 1929. Uh, This was before the dobro had been invented. Uh, Ellsworth just took a guitar and set it on his lap with a high nut, played it with a bar, like a Hawaiian guitar was known in those days. So uh, (laughs) Mike said to me in one of our jam sessions when Mike was playing a banjo, he said, did you hear that new uh, sound of flattened scrugs? They have a dobro. I'm going to get one. I'm going to play that. Mike uh, befriended Josh Graves, who played that dobro with Flatten Scruggs, and uh, Josh helped Mike acquire his first dobro. So blow your whistle, freight train. Carry me farther on down the track. Well, I'm going away. I'm leaving today. I'm going, but I ain't coming back. And the other thing that you get in Dark Hollow is Duffy's mandolin tremolo. And I, I think, I mean, I, I kind of feel like the, the, the Duffy mandolin solo that kind of captures Duffy's mandolin playing better than any other single solo is his solo on Old Grey Bonnet. Um, he, it, it's a three-part solo, and the first third, he just scrubs the whole time in his classic rushed way. You know, you listen to someone like David Grisman play tremolo, and it's like these perfect sort of triplet patterns. Duffy's just throwing his hand at that mandolin and scrubbing as hard as he can. And the second part of that solo, the second third, is uh, this kind of melodic, 
you could even say Monroe and and he but the mandolin kind of sounds out of tune and it's very kind of duffy it's like is it Monroe is it just kind of walking all over the mandolin and then the third he just all of a sudden flicks a switch and he's just playing total blues it's like minor thirds and minor sevenths and it's like rock and roll guitar solo and he even bends the mandolin strings uh, for one note So within one solo, you have him doing his three distinct styles of mandolin playing. Um, and then all of a sudden, the very next track, CNO Canal, he takes a solo, and it could be Jesse McReynolds. It's a, the whole thing is just a cross-picking solo. So I think in that eight minutes of music, you have John Duffy showing off that he can do anything on the mandolin. It's going to be dirty. It's not going to be tight and cleaned up like the people he's imitating or hearkening to, but he can do it all. And it is a really random old tune. It's from 1909, and it's wow. a rag composed by a, a, a notable uh, rag writer called Percy Wenrich, who came from Joplin, Missouri. I feel like Joplin is a very good town to come from if you're a yeah. if you write ragtime. I know you are gonna miss me when I've gone. I would like to talk about the last track on this record, Rider. This is this is one that, you know, I, I keep talking about how this record encapsulates so much. But this one, I mean, I first was introduced to this song um, as a teenager, as a Grateful Dead fan, because uh, they would the Grateful Dead recorded this over and over in so many live recordings. But I would say most famously on the Live from Europe in 1972 record, which is, I don't know, up there in their top five most famous records. And they always coupled this song with their their hit, China Cat Sunflower, which is uh, a, a Robert Hunter lyric tune, a classic a classic dead song. And then they would do I Know You Rider, and Jerry would, would sing the crap out of it. But in this one, they're clearly tipping their hat to the Grateful Dead because they take crazy extended solos, um, especially, again, John Duffy. He takes a solo where he kind of stops in the middle and somebody says, hey, John, where'd that lick come from? And he says, I just invented it. Seven minutes is all it was. It used to go. Sometimes it would go fifteen minutes. You know, we just we we'd get crazy with it. Um, and actually, we 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 there are a lot of. It was fun to play, but I think there are, we we you know we sort of overdid it. You want to hear me, Eric?
but it's an interesting song. It was it was a song that is mostly traceable to the 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 blues guitar player, blind blues guitar player, Blind Lemon Jefferson, who recorded it in 1927. So it was also it's also attributed to uh, a, a recording made by Alan and John Lomax, um, uh, and I couldn't find out anything more about who the singer was beyond that she was an incarcerated African-American woman, 18 years old, in jail for murder. And uh, she just sang one verse, and then they coupled, Alan and John Lomax coupled the rest together. And then, of course, in the 60s, Grateful Dead played it, and Joan Baez, and the Kingston Trio, and Janis Joplin, and James Taylor, and Judy Roderick, and Hot Tuna, and The Birds. And then, of course... The seldom seen. Gonna miss your baby from rolling in your eyes. Thank you very much. the end of the show and it's also the end of this series we really hope you've enjoyed it we have very much enjoyed chatting to all the amazing musicians who kindly spent time with us in nashville and throughout tennessee and thank you to our sponsor the soundtrack of america made in tennessee don't forget to check out tnvacation.com to start planning your trip now